When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Bar Humbug, a podcast about the cuddliest of all movie genres, the Christmas movie. My name is Helen O'Hara and I'll be commanding air operations for this Christmas season. Hang on, that doesn't sound cuddly at all. This episode may be a little bit different. So today we are going to be talking about Martin Wood's Operation Christmas Drop, which is new this year on Netflix, and contrasting that with 2005's Joyeux Noël uh, about the World War I truce on Christmas Day. So will this new contender soon be joining the ranks of the Christmas classics, or will it plummet and crash like a badly loaded pallet of supplies onto a small Pacific atoll? Well, with me to talk about it are two of the greatest Christmas movie experts out there, two people who know the final score in that famous World War I Christmas Day soccer match in No Man's Land, and aren't afraid to share it. First of all, I'm delighted to welcome film historian, author, and programmer of the current Marlena Dietrich season at the BFI South Bank right now, Pamela Hutchison. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm feeling very festive. Thank you. <laughs> Hurrah. Excellent. Yes, I, I should say uh, just to listeners, you should know that she took off her Christmas tree earrings in order to be able to, you know, better record without them making noise. So that's commitment. I like to see that. That's good. Um, and we're joined by another of my favourite people, Phil DeSemlin, who is the film editor at Time Out London and, of course, a former Empireite as well. Welcome, Phil. Thank you very much for having me, Helen. You're welcome. I very <laughs> much very enjoyed your pronunciation of Joyeux Noël. Joyeux yeah. Noël. Voilà. Happy Christmas. Yeah, it was very impressive. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, I actually got really confused because I, I, I went to watch it on Amazon and it's called Merry Christmas. And I was a bit like, is this the same film? <laughs> oh, I don't I don't know. And then obviously it, it was. So well, well done me. But before we get into these two specific films, what is your attitude to Christmas movies as a whole? Are you, you know, an elf or more of a Grinch? Uh, I love a Christmas movie, but they generally put me in quite a Grinch spirit because I think I, I, I'm drawn to the darker material. Elf is far too happy for me. If, okay. if somebody contemplates suicide, if it's in black <laughs> and white, if it, if the real message is that you should give away all your stuff and not right. be happy, that's my kind of Christmas movie. So, um, no, it's a wonderful here. life, basically. Yeah, I mean, that is too jolly for me, quite frankly. Wow. But we'll, okay. We'll, we'll <laughs> allow it. Um, that's on the that's on the cheerier end. I like a bit of Christmas misery. So thanks. Right. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> How about you, Phil? I'm a bit somewhere in the middle, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not mass. I'm not a massive Christmas movies fan. But then the kind of there's an appeal in just sitting down um, on the sofa and cozying up with a couple of Christmas movies at the you know sort of with the family and whatever. But mm-hmm. yeah, my brother will 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 probably tell you that there was a famous Christmas where I made everyone watch. Um, the bitter tears of Petra von Kant on Christmas Eve. So I mean, you know, it's kind of like my my idea of a Christmas movie is a bit fluid, I would mm-hmm. say. But yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not a sort of hardcore devotee of the genre, the subgenre. So, yeah, I should I should make. I mean, we used to make jokes on the Empire podcast about you being Art House mm. Phil, uh, and you don't with with stories like that. You don't exactly run away from no. the designation. As I was really. saying that, I was like, that's not going to dispel any of those those rumors, <laughs> those legends. Um, but no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah no. I mean, I do, I do. I do. I just I wouldn't say I was a massive expert. So right, fair yeah. enough. 
Fair enough. You haven't seen all of the Santa Claus movies uh, back to back at any point. Then. I haven't. No. Yet. Well, speaking of programming seasons of unmissable movies like the Santa Clauses, um, Pamela, tell me about Marlene Dietrich. What should we be going to see apart from all of them, obviously? All of the films, all of them. <laughs> Marlene Dietrich's never been bad at anything and it was just such a joy to program it. I think that if, you know, the people listening to this podcast are obviously the real cinephile heads and um, I know that you'll want to see the silent film that she made. One of the silent films was showing The Three mm. Lovers. Um, I know that you'll want to um, get yourself boosted up on festive cheer, shall we say, and watch The Scarlet Empress, in which she plays uh, Catherine the Great having her sexual awakening. And that is not the most exciting thing about the film. Um, Whoa. And, you know, that we've got everything. We've got Destry Rides again. We've got Foreign Affair, which will break your heart. And we also have a really rare thing, which is that we're showing Marlene, which is the 1980s documentary made by Maximilian Schell, which has her oh, wow. talking about her career. And it's just incredible because you're in the presence of greatness for an hour and a half. And I just love Marlene. I mean, yeah, that sounds amazing. I have not seen all of those, I must confess. I have, I've done, you know, I've dabbled but I have not seen all the Dietrichs, so that would be that would be incredible. Um, sadly, she doesn't star in either of the films today, um, yeah. which is which is a bit of a shame. But we can't have everything. So let's talk about these two films because uh, I'll be honest, you guys kind of you didn't draw the long straw, let's say, um, <laughs> in terms of the new film in particular that I gave you. Um, so Operation Christmas Drop is not as you might think the sequel to Operation Dumbo Drop or the second in the Operation Something Drop cinematic universe. It's unrelated, in fact. It comes from director Martin Wood and stars Kat Graham as Erica, who's an aide to US Congresswoman Bradford, who's played by Virginia Madsen. And she's keen to shut down a US Air Force base in Guam. Erica's sent out to evaluate the base just before Christmas, where, wouldn't you know it, she's shown around by hunky Captain Andrew Jantz, who's played by Alexander Ludwig, and he's in charge of the titular Operation Christmas Drop, which is a lifeline to thousands of people, uh, but one that faces devastation if the base is closed. So cue a charm campaign to convince Erica to keep the base going, and of course, an unnecessary romance. Um, then we're contrasting that with Joya Noel, <laughs> so sorry, um, which is a 2005 film from Christian Carion. And it was an international co-production that tells the story of the famed 1914 Christmas Day football match between opposing troops as World War I raged. So it's told through the eyes of a Scottish squaddy, Gordon, who's played by Alex Ferns, a French lieutenant, Audubert, who's played by Guillaume Canet, a German opera singer turned private, Benno Furman, and his wife, Diane Kruger, and a German captain, Horst Meyer, played by Daniel Brühl. It's a bit of an ensemble piece. You're going to have to stick with us. So basically, my fairly spurious reason for putting these two together is that they're kind of, there's an element of military propaganda wrapped in tinsel, I think, in the first one. And, and it's a real contrast in attitudes to military between the two. But it does raise questions about, you know, how do you cope with Christmas or how do you cope with kind of human impulses when you're far away from home serving in the military and of course both are also based on true stories so they're basically identical um, <laughs> <laughs> apart from you know everything um so okay first reaction what did you think of both films and again I really am sorry yeah you don't need to apologize <laughs> we can call for a truce just we're <laughs> adults yeah we knew what we were getting into um <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen a film like Operation Christmas Drop for a while, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so in some ways, it was kind of a refreshing change mm -hmm. because it's all kind of on one note and it's all, <laughs> it's, it's very undemanding. 
Um, it is that. That is very, true. It's very marshmallow. And in some ways, that's quite nice. And when I was saying that it's, you know, cutting up on the sofa and watching a Christmas movie, that's why I think people really go, you know, die, prepared to sort of die on a snowy hill for mm. terrible Christmas movies because they kind of get you in the same way, I think, that that plane, you know, watching a, a movie on a plane does. It's sort of a rarefied spirit that you, you go into it with. So it's very difficult to really pull apart a Christmas movie like this, but I'm gonna gonna do it anyway because it's really, <laughs> right. it's, it's really. I mean, okay, it's 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 incredibly cheesy, obviously, and schmaltzy, mm. but it's sort of made with a kind of distinct lack of of any kind of visual flair as well and chemistry. The things that you know that if it had a little bit of, it could really get a pass quite easily because mm. the locations are lovely. Um, locations are fabulous yeah um i don't want to hog the mic on this one because i'm sure pamela has some early reactions as well but i would just say that i'm sure we'll get into it in a bit more detail Mm. but i think you make a really i hadn't really sort of considered the 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 thematic undercurrents of your two (laughs) incredibly sharp picks in the way that you put it but you're actually absolutely right they are kind of about what it's like to have christmas away from home and in some ways, that's sort of like where people are going to be a bit this Christmas, isn't it? Mm. So, so yeah. they may have like an emotional connection they wouldn't normally have. But, it, uh, you know, in the case of Operation Christmas Drop, it did feel a bit top gunny. It did feel a bit like mm. the US military insisted on at least sort of like, you know, two minutes of F-15 porn every hour or so, you know, <laughs> just lingering shots of fighter jets and people saying things like, I wrote this one down because it's egregious. To see our military making that kind of a difference in people's lives stirs my heart or whatever. But, you know, you're just like, really? <laughs> yes. I guess it makes a difference from bombing them, but yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll pass it over to Pamela before before I hole. Yeah, I kind of thought that Operation Christmas Drop was a little bit like mulled wine. You, know, you think it's going to be so delicious and festive, but actually, it tastes of very little and it goes cold very fast. You know, I thought that I was. I see people love the sort of familiarity and the comfort of these kind of like almost, uh, you know, routine issue Christmas movies. You mm. want to put it on while you're wrapping presents, but you do that because you kind of want to be distracted from what you're seeing on screen. Mm. I have no problem with sentiment. I love sentiment. I love a sentimental movie, but it has to be human sentiment, not just chemical. <laughs> and there was there was nothing there that really really made me feel that the relationship at the heart of the film was was true I enjoyed Virginia Madsen being a baddie I enjoyed the beaches I think for many many ways the film was summed up for me when uh, there's a very touching scene when our heroine is handed a, a, a flower by one of the local women she puts it in her hair it's sort of symbol of how she is loosening up and embracing local ways and then when you see a close-up later in the film it's a silk flower you know, it's as plastic as can be. And it just there's a little bit of fakery in this film. Um, I wasn't warming to it. I was warming to the beaches and warming to the idea of what it could be if we'd have had a film, a real proper grinchy Christmas film all about Virginia Madsen's character, the mm. evil um, Washington politician who wanted to shut down Christmas. She literally shut wanted down. to do that. Let, she, she, yeah. Shut down this Christmas thing that's happening at some yeah. point, she said. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, and we should say, like, Operation Christmas Drop is a real thing. Um, mm. It does happen. It's happened every year. I think this is the 69th year it's happened. Um, so that is, I mean, that's interesting. It's a story I wasn't aware of beforehand, but I was interested that it happens. I have to say, I've read some criticism of this film from um, a local writer from Guam, which is technically apparently not South Pacific. It's Marianas that it belongs to. And, and 
that person was very critical of this of this film's approach to the islanders to all the indigenous people of the region pointing out that they had survived for thousands of years without <laughs> um, american military assistance and that maybe you know capitalism and colonialism might have had something to do with any problems uh, in 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 the recent past it's very much wor- worth reading that's a piece on if you look for it on vox Operation Christmas Drop, it's really, really worth reading for a, an alternative view on this. But you're, you're right, Phil. I mean, it does feel like the US military has signed off virtually every scene in this movie. Yeah, it's got a real sense of like, well, I mean, you guess they had to film on a military base. So you'd mm. expect that, you know, what the, the when when you get, when you, when you sort of file your script to the US State Department or whoever for approval, then they're going to go through it with a fine tooth comb. So I, I mean, like, I don't feel like without the US military's approval, this would have been a really scathing kind of takedown of the US military <laughs> a la Buffalo Soldiers. I don't feel mm. like that's probably what the filmmakers had in mind anyway. But it certainly, <laughs> it certainly does feel a bit, you know, a bit glossy for sure. But like you say, this this thing, this humanitarian airlift has been running since the 1950s. So it's mm. like, you know, it's an interesting story about how the, the military tries to give something back to that region. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, like you say, the Virginia Madsen character is like it's that, that kind of Christmas movie trope where you've got the sort of hopeful, optimistic character who loves Christmas and believes in everything, and then you've got the kind of like jaded cynic, yeah. and then the Grinchy character, and then you've got another, you've got like Super Grinch, you've got like the, the kind of like boss Grinch of the level, and that's Virginia yeah. Madsen. And it mm. used this bit where she eventually arrived out in the island with her kind of like her aide who's the obviously the heroine of the story and has this remarkably rapid conversion to <laughs> they take her up and have a fly around the islands and then she comes back and she's like yes more money for all of you this is great we're keeping it come <laughs> on i'm flying back to dc fantastic and you're like mm, it's a christmas miracle it was, <laughs> yeah, it was it really is. of screenwriting i think they left the paper <laughs> the script out at that point frankly i mean yeah i do think you know it is propaganda i mean as you both know, I sort of deal with older films. And I think when you look at films from a few decades distance, you feel a lot softer and warmer about films that have a clearly obvious propaganda message because you can see the value of the film. And, you know, in 30 years time, the three of us will be talking about this and saying, wasn't it wonderful that, you know, the US used to do any kind of humanitarian aid through the military (laughs) and that we thought it was a good idea and that we were naive to make films celebrating that. Um, So, you know, there is a possibility that we Mm. actually can redeem it through its propagandic value rather than through the sort of wafer-thin romance between (laughs) one stick figure and another. I mean, literally, you were saying, Phil, the sort of joyous christmas loving character is called claws in this film yeah, i did wonder sign. Yeah. i just wonder whether it was a film for children actually and i do think <laughs> the children would see through it but they also would like the beaches so it's a win-win yeah i mean i i, I feel like alexander ludwig is is doing penance in this film mm-hmm. in a little sense because he of course was in uh the dark is rising or as they called it for the screen the seeker colon the dark is rising and the dark is rising is one of the greatest children's books ever written in this country and the seeker colon the dark is rising is an absolute monstrosity of a film that completely misses any kind of magic or point that the book had and god bless him he was young he needed the work like you know we, we don't call, hold him entirely responsible for that <laughs> but it feels like this is a you know this is him perhaps trying to do a little bit better by christmas 
uh, this year. He was in the Hunger Games too, right? He was in the Hunger I mean, yes, he's yeah. done a lot of things since, but I, 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 I had yeah. to get the darkest rising no. off my chest. You did the right thing there, for sure. <laughs> yeah. You feel so better now, for that. So now we know to sort of buy our nieces and nephews darkest rising for Christmas, but not to oh, yeah. show them Operation Christmas Drop, um, unless they really have a thing for beaches. Yeah. I've always had the, I've always had a, you know, a bit of a yen to have like Christmas in Hawaii or somewhere. Just play Meli Kaliki Maka just on, on repeat over and over again, the whole Christmas season. I feel like it would be an interesting way to do Christmas. So I admired that part of the film. I was very much here for the beaches. And I think uh, apparently, again, that the credit, one, some of the criticism of the film I was reading, this overlooks the fact that Guam is a built up island with a thriving economy and lots of, you know, modern amenities and sort of focuses on the, you know, huts basically mm. that are kept for tourists but at the same time it looks amazing it does look amazing i will give it that yeah there's a lot of kind of or, that's why i sort of thought it's for children that like educational stuff this is what it's like to have christmas in the tropics you know when you explain to children <laughs> that you know it, it's hot in australia this time of year and uh, you know they have uh sort of grated coconuts instead of snow mm. which will probably smell great you know but I suppose we could forgive them by saying that it's it's not really set in Guam. It's filmed in Guam, but it's set inside a military base, which is a slightly different world. That would mm. be our way of excusing the fact that it bears no resemblance to reality. <laughs> That's true. Do you know they're um, watching in Guam going, we have Wi-Fi here. Why is it that every time they're trying to do a Zoom call, it craps out? Like, what, what's wrong with you people? So it's probably the CG geckos that oh, get in the way my of God. the, yes. uh, of Can the we Wi-Fi. discuss the CG gecko now, please? Favourite character? <laughs> Unbelievable. Far more presence than the heroine. I don't, yeah. It reminded me a lot of Bad Lieutenant, the Nicolas Cage remake one, like with the lizard. It's like, why is this thing in this film? I don't understand. It was all going a bit naked lunch when she arrived and she started hallucinating. Then I realised she wasn't hallucinating and this wasn't going to be quite such an interesting film as I expected. But um, no, there were no hallucinations here. No. Yes, the drop in the drop in Operation Christmas Drop applies to acid. So you <laughs> sit back and enjoy. It would be an, maybe an interesting thing. I think no one imbibes anything stronger than cranberry and soda in this film, of course. Well, she's fine. working, he's working. You know, it's very they take it seriously. Yeah, there's nothing like taking your shirt off for uh, the working vibe. But I, I get yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's a fair criticism. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's hot there and they just wanted to make that clear. I also think there might be a clause in the contract of every man who stars in one of these movies, to be perfectly honest, that at some point he probably will be shirtless. I mean, the Avengers, I, I, I think, took turns. I always got the impression. I feel like um, there's something similar going on with all the men in all the Netflix Christmas movies, because there's a lot of unnecessary toplessness, especially given the time of year, just like Everybody likes you in jumpers and plaid shirts, guys. You know, just just mm-hmm. stay dressed. It'll be fine. I feel like it's a bit of a shorthand for suggesting there's something more adult about the romance than there really is because it is just two people who talk to each other for a bit and then decide to kiss each other. That's, that's pretty much the extent <laughs> of it. Um, showing him surfing or whatever topless is suggesting that there's some real desire going on. And, you know, maybe, you know, if you're watching this and you really love him, you know, you really desire him yourself, you'll, you'll get something more from this film than I was allowing myself to feel because... I'm a joyless soul. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, he's a fine figure of a man. He's very Ooh. tall and, and everything else. And, uh, you know, and she is kind of the queen of these Christmas movies. I don't know if you're familiar with her of in this respect, but she starred in not just Holiday Calendar, where she was the recipient of a magic advent calendar. She also starred in last year's The Night Before Christmas. And I mean night with a K <laughs> because a medieval knight came through a time portal. Um, to her backyard and uh, they 
fell in with each other. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this is actually the least ridiculous Christmas movie that she's made so far. Not that that necessarily helped with the chemistry, but I like that she at least had a point of view and a character and a purpose in life. So, mm-hmm. you know, I may be grading on a curve here, but, she, you know, she gets some points for that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't super taken with her performance. I have to say, I was, I'm actually, I was quite shocked to learn she'd been in a film before because, and I wonder whether it's the direction, but she's very awkward. And at first I thought, this is great. You've got this heroine who's all about her career and she she's even a bit gawky and awkward. But mm-hmm. then I thought maybe that was just the way she held herself on camera. Um, but maybe it's just those uncomfortable high heels in the Guam heat. I mean, this is a real trope of these kind of Christmas movies. So this is this falls squarely into, uh, I keep saying that there are three different kinds of Christmas movies. There's the member of Santa's family comes to the real world. There's the twist on a Christmas carol. And there's the high achieving woman moves to a small town and falls in love with a local man who wears a lot of plaid. This one is very much in the third camp, even though there's not enough plaid in it, because she is, you know, it's the usual same story that we've seen from these women a million times. Oh, what, you haven't had a vacation day in like six years? Oh, well, you're definitely in line to meet somebody hunky like in about the next five minutes. Wait for it. Just work hard and a hunk will appear. That's what I've been told my whole life. It's where I've been going wrong, I'll be honest. So, you know. (laughs) Not working hard enough. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for showing us this film, Helen. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, Yeah. It was worth it for the kiss at the end, which was probably the most unromantic thing I've really ever seen in any case. <laughs> I've been involved in some unromantic activities. And I was just like, wow, they are like like two magnets that are repelling. It was a it was a funny yeah, it was a funny scene because it ends with with her does she organise to have his entire family flown out as a surprise? Yes, but yeah, you never yeah. see them. No. They're like they're in that house over there, but that's kiss, and that's the end. And you're like, well, I don't think you yeah. guys flew out the, the the other cast members to go on for this particular <laughs> scene, did you? you let's think? be honest, no. But yeah. you think I don't know. I was just. Uh, I think it, you do kind of like, no matter how thin the material, you do kind of need a bit of spark between the two leads, and that was yeah. very much absent here. I would say. It, and it's weird because, you know, they're both beautiful people. Like, you feel like sometimes these things should automatically happen. Just like two beautiful people on screen, boom, done. But, yeah, you're right. It, it's not It's not there in that scene at all. Can I ask, Pamela, can I ask you a question? As a film historian, you probably know much more about this. Um, when, when two actors that are romantically involved on screen really don't get on on set, um, can, can you, as a rule, tell a bit from their performances? Or are they, you know, historically... I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if there are any that spring to mind, I just wondered because I mean, when I watched this, I was like, "These, these two probably didn't like each other." But that's that's probably not true, is it? They probably got on fine. They just didn't have that spark. I um, think that the best way to get movie star romance is to get you know uh, two people who are very much in love, you know. But so, for example, in my current you know line of work, it would be let's get Marlon Dietrich and Jean Gabin on screen, and it's just sizzling. But what's even better is to get Marlene Dietrich and John Wayne at the end of their affair. And then the passion (laughs) between them is so vicious. And you always believe the thing that's keeping them apart. I think, you know, with this couple, uh, you know, they had some badinage in the jeep (laughs) on the way to the, you know, where he guessed everything about her. And ha ha, he he was wrong. Because he's such a complicated character. Or he just is a very good accent. I'm not sure. You know, but there was no, there's no spark of any kind. I mean, and 
even if they've just had one little fling in the Winnebago, I think a fling is a nice word, isn't it? That's why they <laughs> in the Winnebago. It's probably better. But I feel like these two people were just two people who went, "Oh, great! I also like Pokemon." Anyway, let's shoot the scene and didn't really have anything uh, sexual going on at all. Uh, I honestly thought her relationship with her boss and her friend back home was much more exciting because mm. she was so desperate to please, so sort of you know caught up with someone else's life in a way that was really going to change her future her relationship with her father and with her sort of would-be lover was just not the same so no. i mean there should have been more hate is what i'm saying i'm <laughs> <grungy> today <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's but you're not wrong i mean even it can go the other way like to be fair it can be like uh uh taylor and burton uh in mm. their first some of their films together are not their the chemistry is not there and i sum it really sizzles but by no means is that kind of a golden rule. So, you know, it can go horribly wrong. I just feel like in these two, you're right, they just sort of nodded to each other and were fine with each other and thought no more about each other ever in life, it felt like. But you need to have something, because, you know, just like most romances, this one starts with them not getting on and then they have to sort of go over it. And I didn't believe either half of it, bless them. Mm. Um, I didn't believe they ever wanted to dance. I didn't believe either of them cared about Christmas. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I definitely believe that one of them thought that the US military should be painted in a good light. I definitely believe that. Yeah, he was very clear on that. He was he yeah. was absolutely clear on that. Um, apparently, um, the Air Force Base there, I think it's Andrews Air Force Base, has never been in danger of closure and basically never will be because it's considered strategically important. Just in case anybody came out of this film and was worried about whether this could happen <laughs> in real life. I like to reassure people on that score. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, you know, so that kind of... that that. Again, it just didn't feel 100% real because I think the the setup is one that could work for a film. This idea of, you know, meddling politicians sent into, you know, innocent do-gooding army base. I'm sorry, I've lost. Yeah, no, something like that. It, it could theoretically work. Um, you could even set up a sort of political, you know, disagreement between them. It could, it could be a thing. Um, but again, I'm not sure it entirely worked here. Yeah. The director, by the way, does a lot of Virgin River, which is also on Netflix, which is a, a fabulously soapy romantic drama. And there is actual chemistry there. So, you know, again, it, it can happen. It's not necessarily that he's just totally oblivious to romance. I, I just think it maybe didn't quite happen here. Helen, tell me, is this a is this a Netflix movie or is it one that they would have picked up? It's a Netflix movie, right? I believe it's a Netflix movie, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we've seen the beginning of a sort of Christmas industrial complex at Netflix. Oh, yeah. Where they've got el elves cinematographers being trained and just turning the stuff out and that it's going to become a massive sort of yeah. Netflix genre. Oh, it's, it is already, it already is. a massive thing. Yeah, it already okay. is a, a, a massive thing. I, I think that's due to, and I'm sorry about this, people like me who get <laughs> home after a hard day of watching good films and decide, no, no, I can't decide, I can't, watch anything actually quality now i'd have to focus on that i'd have to pay attention what i need is something mindless and i put on these films and i think i'm the reason that they keep commissioning them and why there are i think three christmas princes and certainly two princess switches okay i'm sorry guys so it's yeah. your fault basically it's my fault yeah i'll take that your take fault that and also the fault of the co-directors greg greg rosen rosen um, uh -huh. and Brian Sawyer, who I believe are, well, just looking at IMDb, they're a writing team who are responsible for an unbelievable number of Christmas-based TV movies. We've got North Pole, Santa Switch, Pete's Christmas, The Christmas Consultant. Christmas um, Consultant? Christ Christmas Consultant, yes. That sounds great. <laughs> That's when you bring in PwC to get rid of some of your elves. 
because you, you can't you gotta you gotta lose headcount. Uh, Christmas Connection, Rocky Mountain Christmas, Winter's Dream, Christmas at Graceland, A Twist on Christmas, Gingerbread Romance may not be Christmas related, probably is. So I'm thinking these guys yeah. are just working around year round. Mm. Probably worst ways to be. Do you know? think? As someone who appreciates the, you know, we all know the the work of the Hollywood studio system. Sometimes you do things on a, a machine line. Sometimes you do the mm-hmm. assembly line, make a factory, a festive romance factory. Sooner or later, <laughs> Casablanca will happen, right? You just, you, you don't need to do anything. It just appears. And so um, one of these days we're going to get the Casablanca of Christmas drop movies. Oh Netflix God. Christmas movies. You're I not, cannot wait. You know, and I'm here for it. I mean... I have slightly simplified quite a lot of film history there, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just because people are working to formula doesn't mean the formula yeah. can't suddenly click into place. Like, I wasn't particularly taken with the two leads in this film, but there's lots of young actors out there who I'm sure could definitely seduce someone while wearing a Santa hat and mm. looking troubled about their, you know, the portfolio or the deadlines. <laughs> and, you know, I just, we need the new, like, Reese Witherspoon to turn up and just make one of these things great. And uh, then, then we'll be sorry and we'll be coming crawling to Helen and say, you got here first. <laughs> we appreciate you. Like, make we never Christmas did great again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I, I do feel like they're inching closer to that because we're now getting you know, some of these Christmas movies that have actual budgets um, and where the camera doesn't look like it might fall over at any moment and where, you know, actual human beings appear to have been involved in writing the script with all with all respect to Rosson and, and Sawyer. Um, some of these movies in this genre, not necessarily theirs, uh, do appear to have been written by a robot that once heard about Christmas. So, you know, there, there is... There is a lot of dross out there. There's an unbelievable dross, but every so often something crops up that at least has actors who have careers um, and or production values. So, you know, I, my, my needs are few for these movies, but those, those are the dreams that I'm looking for. Let's talk for a little bit about Joyeux Noël as well, because it's it's a very, very, very different movie. Um, and it's very much... Uh, an anti-war movie like it is absolutely pretty clear on that there is no there is no gray area there I think it's fair to say I mean this to me I I'm so glad that you showed this to us because it completely passed me by and as someone who watches a lot of films made in or set in the first world war you have you know completely uh you know filled in a gap in my knowledge of film and and also of film history because I was just going by the Sainsbury's advert but this is a much more <laughs> version of the Sainsbury's advert and this is beautifully prestige beautiful performances I don't want to compare it to the other film really you know but you know I much as Diane Kruger's character just seemed to be largely invented mm. believe in what she's thinking and this is a film in which uh, working class men of all nations come together via Latin but also yeah. by God, and it's so remarkable actually in Christmas films how secular they very often are. It's rare mm. to have such a religious theme in uh, a Christmas film. What we do is we sort of mimic religion by sort of having people learn to be better people just mm. because of perhaps they fancy someone who has this shirt. Learning, off. learning <laughs> to generally believe, but not necessarily in a specific thing. Learning to believe in the spirit of Christmas, which obviously has nothing to do with any kind of religion whatsoever. And so, so I thought, you know. It's an incredibly captivating film. I mean, obviously, one could be as cynical about this as one could be about other things. The production values and the performances are just in a different galaxy to the other. And I I admit that I was rather spellbound throughout. And it's stopped me and my partner talking about our house move for two hours, which is an incredible achievement. (laughs) That is good. Well done. 
Well, the first thing to say, I would say is that no one takes their top off in this movie. So if you're looking, <laughs> if you're looking for abs, they would have stools on if they did, though, probably. But they would, they would fleas. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. There's the romantic scene where 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 Diane Kruger's husband goes out for the trenches, and the first thing he says, "I've got lice." Yes. I don't care, love. Give us a kiss. <laughs> um, I, but I, yeah, I, I agree with Pamela 100%. I'd seen this film a few years ago and it hadn't really kind of resonated in the way that it did when I watched it again this weekend. It was a much better film than than my memory of it, mm. if you see what I mean. I don't know if you have films like that, which yep. you just look, when you really focus on them, you're like, actually, this film has got a lot to say, but the things it has to say are quite, you know, they're quite, they're quite they could be quite broad points. I, like Pamela, I'm quite a big fan of, uh, war movies and first world war movies and you know there's scenes in like all quite in the western front for instance where the german soldiers are talking about why are we all doing this you know mm-hmm. and that's obviously set quite a lot later in the war but they're all kind of like trying to come to terms with what it means to be you know countries at war and, and, and members of those countries at war with other countries and not really understanding why you're there except that you're there um, and I think this film captured that stuff really well. And because that's such an enduring and still quite zeitgeisty theme, in fact, probably more so than for a while in the last few years, um, it kind of it kind of resonates quite powerfully. Again, the lack of any English soldiers in the film uh, made me think about Brexit. Because um, <laughs> you have yes, you know, it's Scottish, isn't it? They're Scottish. They're Scottish. Yeah. And there is a line in it where they're like, you know, the, the, where the English aren't, aren't kind of like not there and everyone's having a great time as a result, which I thought was quite <laughs> funny. Um, I may be misremembering that. But, you know, you've got the Germans, the, the, the Scottish and the French and and none of them really know each other. Even the, the allies mm. don't really know each other. Mm. So, yeah. you know, you've got all of these little details about the way this dynamic and this really strange time in the war and in history where... You know, everyone was telling them that the war would be over by Christmas. That was the thing. Everyone went marching mm-hmm. off to what this will be like a few weeks and then we're back home for Turkey. But I guess they're just suddenly at that point realising that actually, no, it isn't going to be over for Christmas. And it started mm-hmm. the sort of the kind of the, the, the pain of it and the longevity of it starting to sink in. And yeah. I think I think it captured that really well. It was yeah. I hadn't realised actually that it was nominated for Best International Film at the Oscars. And I think it lost out to Tootsie. Not Tootsie. Tootsie. The South African yeah. the South African film by Gavin yeah. Hood rather Gavin than Hood's the film. Not, Dustin not, Hoffman film. Yeah. 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 Like twenty yeah. years, twenty years too late. They were like, Oh, we've opened the wrong envelope again. Oh no. Um, but um, people like to say this time, yeah. I mean he did like it a, a little bit of like schmaltz in there because how could you not but schmaltz keeps you warm at the front yeah of course it does absolutely and you need that and i thought it had that and um you know i used to be in a choir when i was at school so obviously getting off on the on the on the the massive latin bangers (laughs) a lot of like christmas carol bangers and you know, it's kind of like the greatest showman for your man, this film, isn't it? It's, sort of... it's a little bit like the German tenor starts singing and you, you first you think, oh, okay, he's going to sing one of the ones even I know. This yeah. Is yeah, 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 yeah. That's what's unifying about it, I guess, mm. you know. Yeah. So the Odessi Fidelis scene actually mm. did make me tear up a little bit. I was like, oh, this, this is actually quite moving. And I think the film sets up a direct opposition between war and music like they're two complete opposite ends of the spectrum like they cannot coexist so like music in this film it seems to be used as now we're anti-war like it's 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 a sort of absolute different end of the spectrum that's the word i was looking for spectrum 
yeah, it, it is. It is a very simple message, but I think what they do well is that they surround it with enough kind of historical detail that you realise what the stakes are. You know, for I mean, we've all heard stories about the football match and and people singing carols and things like that. But the stakes are to actually go with it and say, well, what, well, if we lay down our weapons, are we totally sure that the other side will? And mm. I thought that was really beautifully handled with the uh, the fear around that and the sort of sternness of some of the officers and Daniel Brawl particularly. I thought was excellent. Yeah. And of course, you know, they had dropped the bomb at the end of the film when he reveals that he's Jewish. And, you know, and again, you know, it's a film that is very aware of all its contexts. Mm. And I think that's one thing, not to harp on the other film, but, you know, when you don't have, I don't think that film should exactly just replicate the real world, especially if they're contemporary sets, you know, we're allowed to have things. But when things are in direct contradiction to your lived experience, then it's mm-hmm. strange. And, you know, here we, you could, even though it's obviously, you know, more than 100 years old, the setting of this film, I think we all know enough about it and they were quite honest about some of the difficulties around uh, the time of history that we're having. And, and you know, who doesn't identify with a soldier terrified in a trench at some point? I mean, you know, you only need to look at one close-up. And, as, you know, I, I was I was in bits, to be honest. The fear mm. of going over the top will never not be powerful, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, even Blackadder couldn't make that funny. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it is a horrifying, horrifying thing. I mean, Blackadder continues to be a great resource for people to learn about the First World War. And I'm not even being flippant. I mean, you know, it's really well researched. (laughs) You know, know, when I think about, you know, as a silent film person, you know, what are the films made during the First World War about the First World War? Which are the ones you should watch? And I could tell you to watch The Battle of the Somme, which is a documentary from 1916, obviously, or the best one shoulder arms charlie chaplin 1918 and you know the soldiers at the time said you know you've got the trenches right you know <laughs> and it's a mm. fantasy about the tramp killing the kaiser obviously but still it's got it's got enough realism that made yeah. it connect to people and this this film is very glossy but it has mm. just just the right amount of realism i think to uh, to kid this 21st century viewer yeah there's, there's a great couple of lines in it as well. I think it, it comes up a couple of times. Certainly Daniel Brühl has one of them and I think Guillaume Canet has the other um, where they, they're talking about minor things like passing letters across the lines uh, and and it, and they say, well, the war won't be won or lost on this. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're already in, what, three, four months into the war, they're already, already realising these this is too big for anything we do here to really matter. Like nothing that we as individuals do essentially plays any part in this there's an element of fatalism to the situation that they're in where they they just have no control whatsoever of the situation and i guess this christmas night is them taking a moment of control for themselves by laying down their arms and of course it doesn't have any lasting positive effect either i mean that's the really sad thing we all hear about this as a kind of an inspiring story when we're at school but it you know we we kept fighting for four more years and so many people died I'm not... sorry to bring it down. <laughs> no, no. It, <laughs> well, it's it's so undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Not only to, did it not, but I think, you know, the, the film's very good on like how the, how the armies of each side like stamp down on this really quickly and in quite a ferocious way. And, and, and it ends on quite a sort of a minor key note as a result, I think, because you just, you have this, and there's a, there's a, there's a one in particular scene with, with um, Ian, where Ian Richardson, yeah. But Ian Richardson turns up wow. in what's the cameo films, yeah. role and and just crushes this Scottish, uh, I guess, Presbyterian minister who's kind of you know followed his men out to his local his friends from his his parish out to the trenches and and has been part of this truce and just absolutely lacerates him and then gives this you know propaganda based mm-hmm. interpretation of the Bible to to the to the men that will replace 
these men who've been sort of basically sent into exile as a result. So it's all yeah. quite bleak. And I, I understand historically that every Christmas from then on, they would like shell the opposition, the, the, the enemy lines, like as a matter of course, just so it didn't happen again. Mm. Um, and lots of people carried on fighting on the front in 1914 as well. Yeah. It was just isolated pockets of peace, which is yeah. just right, awful yeah. to think that, you know, you could, yeah. could be hearing these stories and it could be your your son who's, yeah, I can't even finish that sentence. <laughs> no, it, it is, yeah, it's horrific. And, you know, even in this film, there's sort of, you know, the sound of bombing down the line, artillery down the line happening mm. in the background during the uh, during the religious service you know so they they don't they sugarcoat it a bit no question but they don't sugarcoat it that much to sort of say that you know nothing else is going on here i think it's quite yeah i was trying to look up afterwards about um kind of how widespread this this thing was mm. but it's quite hard to to tell because sometimes you know with in history the the the, the myths the legend the, the the events become legends and then kind of become myths and then you lose any sense of like scale i guess mm. and any sense of specificity and i was just trying to figure i'm not i couldn't quite get the answers that i know happened in a few places down the line yeah. but i think in most in the popular kind of consciousness ev- everyone stopped fighting on christmas eve 1914 and like pamela like you say it's not that's not what happened mm. i don't think the film put, no. you know pretends that that's what happened i think it's very clear that it's quite a sort of isolated situation it's got a microcosm of of these sort of soldiers experiences of that moment um but yeah i i I, just a really kind of weird tension all through the film Mm. like you say of these these men who are just not quite sure because they're just on there's no rules for what they're doing at all yeah Yeah. um which is partly why perhaps the army the militaries on each side just can't they just can't cope with it they're like well this doesn't you know we need you to hate the enemy and we need you to kill the enemy and you can't be doing this you can't be fraternizing with them so you know that's kind of what happened but which you was know, the, those those um, rhymes at the beginning, the children's rhymes of like hate yeah. and nationalism that open the film from the three different nations um, really puts yeah. in that, that specific thing in context. They need them to hate the other nations because otherwise, why would anybody be out there? I did find that the, the opening didn't do it for me in quite the same right. way, just because it just felt like, like you say, that was the point of why they were doing that. But mm. it just felt slightly decoupled from, mm. from the main... You know, because then it goes into this long, like sweeping kind of countryside aerial yeah. shots, and you're like, "What is?" There's not really any point to that narratively. It mm. just looks nice. The kids um, actually looked more uh, World War Two era to me. It felt that felt more Nazi, quite frankly, even though it's right. countries. Um, but I did, but I was quite shocked by just the content of what they were saying. You're just like, "I'm yeah. sorry, what? we're teaching kids what?" Yeah. And I'm assuming those. I'm assuming perhaps wrongly, but I'm assuming those are texts from the time. I think they they seem quite realistic to me from what I've read and what people were. You know, we obviously have sort of watched quite a lot of film propaganda from this time, and it's quite stressing. It's quite a um, and it's a weird opening actually because I think the one of the kids said something about beating the English. And then you have this sweeping shot of green fields. And me and my partner immediately went, where are we? Yeah. That's Hadrian's Wall. We're in Scotland. <laughs> and of course, I think, you know, in this year, it's great as a British, English British <laughs> person to realise that you're completely out of the narrative mm. in every way. Uh, you know, we are sort of facing our own sort of pointless Christmas truce this year as well. And it did make me think a lot about what we're going on in our relationship to, to Europe, because obviously... Uh, the, the the futility of all war is at stake mm. in this film, but there's something particularly strange about neighbours fighting. And, of yeah. course, you know, like the French soldier who's only just down the road from where he's lived and had happy times. And the idea that, you know, Scottish, Scottish people have voluntarily 
come all this way to fight and people just think they're English anyway. I mean, you just realise that the whole, you know, you realise that people are fighting over just scraps of nothing, scraps of yeah. paper that have no connection to them at all. Um, and I can't possibly relate that to anything happening in the present day. <laughs> no. No, I just it, haven't got a clue. Yeah, no, there's nothing, I've got nothing. But I, I just think you did a really nice job of like balancing the three different viewpoints, mm. which I don't think is easy to do. And I, I think it deserves a lot of credit, the director, for that, because yeah. it felt like it didn't feel forced. And I felt like I got a sense of this, the specifics of the experience for all of the different mm. sides, which was also like there's there's one. I mean, I guess the problem with these things, if, if you have one from a story point of view, is you do you do rely on characters representing more than themselves than yeah. you. Yeah. And that and that can make it more film. Yeah, yeah, that can make it feel super tropey and a bit stereotyped and a bit hackneyed. But and there were bits of that, I thought. But then you did have this like one soldier who I don't know if he's one of the guys you meet at the beginning in Scotland, but his, mm-hmm. his brother's killed. Yeah. And and he yeah, yeah. and he's there's an unspoken scene where he is like a German soldier comes over to sort of swap some booze or yeah. cigarettes or something with him yeah. and he's he he gives off an energy where the German basically just like realizes that actually he's yeah. not really interested in trucing at yeah. all and he backs away and I thought that was quite a good powerful moment because mm. it made me think well you know how would you psychologically deal with this situation I'm not entirely sure I would have been able to like go and like have a chat with the enemy at that moment knowing that like in 24 hours you're going to try and kill them again it's almost difficult to you know makes that job harder I suppose yeah I I wonder if there were many who were kind of left behind in the trenches for exactly that reason and just weren't able to go over the top that way no well so I'm quite shy as well which would be a factor yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh I don't know it's it it was yeah I just thought it had lots of like little moments which Mm. which which added up to to much more than you know what it could have been which would be sort of quite a cliched yeah. cliched account of this event I, I guess you can do some of this with world war one in a way you couldn't with world war two because i feel like and maybe this is allied propaganda talking but like in world war two broadly speaking there are good guys and bad guys and in world war one and we can talk about tactics and you know specific incidents and everything else but basically there's a you know there are some really bad guys in world war two and then in world war one it's just a, a monumental fuck up like it is mm. just a mess from beginning to end just a disastrous sequence of horrible decisions taken by people who were not in the trenches what's that simpsons quote about there being no good wars apart from the second world war and star wars <laughs> <laughs> and that was that, that's kind of true although there is a film that this reminded me of set in the second world war mm-hmm. um on a midnight clear i don't know if you've seen that one. Oh no i don't think i have it's called i like the title yeah yeah it's set again it's set in in 19 19- the Christmas 1944. Um, I haven't seen it for years and years, but it did make me think of it. From 1992, um, it's got Peter Berg and it's got Kevin Dillon, Gary Sinise, uh, John McGinley. So it's got a great cast. Oh, wow. And they, yeah, and they really basically play a group of American soldiers who are kind of like cut off in a, sh- in a, in a, in a chateau and the Germans, it's during the Battle of the Bulge and there's sort of, the, oh, wow. there's a group of Germans and there's a group of, and there's, it's kind of like similar, mm. similar sorts of themes and about, mm. you know, they're basically all young men sent off to do this crazy stuff. So that would, that, that's worth checking out. Definitely, we'll do. Yeah. yeah. It's obviously quite a hands-on war. You are quite close to the enemy and like virtually every war that followed it. So there is this thing where you can see the people who are shooting at you quite often. And I know that does happen in other wars, but, you know, we, we mm. got more and more distant and more yeah. and more recognised. I mean, 
1914, it's really sort of before tanks, is how I'm thinking. The tanks came in mm. in the middle. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm not a military historian by any means. <laughs> I've just watched a lot of Charlie Chaplin films. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like much more fun. <laughs> but no, but you're right. It was it, mm. it was sort of the last gasp of gallantry, isn't it? In in really this moment in the war, specifically this kind of Christmas truce. And after that, it's total war. You know, back to total war. No more timeouts. And and just straight through to, you know, the butchery of the psalm and everything else. Um, yeah, that's what that's gloomy. Yeah, what you normally get in, in like a first world war film, it seems as like you know not to put everything into categories, but there are two types: the sort of officers having dilemmas, and the but the by far the most popular is one heroic Tommy kind of thing, like one heroic private who does something amazing, you know, whether he should or he shouldn't. And it's weird because this is about a thing that we can all agree is a beautiful. Thing. you know this this brief outbreak of peace in the middle of hell you know what you get is like phil was saying the characters who don't go along with it the characters who are resistant stand out so it's almost like we're picking out not the villains but often the weak people you know mm. and that's why you realize what's at stake and that's how you realize that it's got more value than just i mean if it's propaganda what's it telling us that we should all love each other that we shouldn't kill each other. I mean, if that's you need Outrageous. to have more to your message. Because <laughs> I think we had those. I think they had them written down somewhere already. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, it, it is glossy and it is sentimental. But I, as I say, I've got no problem with sentiment as, as long as you really feel it. And yeah. God, mm. I felt it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about the Christmas trees. Yes. The German high command had a slightly sort of like bipolar sort of approach to this because they sent all of these Christmas trees to the German to the trenches yeah like thousands of them which was presumably a quite a colossal like logistical undertaking mm. um mm. but they had to be the right size the little ones because you can't be yeah. sending them a sort of 12 meter Norwegian yeah, yeah. spruce anyway and um the kind you have on the front of Selfridges or something like that rather than you yeah, know actually yeah. in the ground you're very not the, less, ones. not the sort of yeah not the sort of Trafalgar Square type of deal but <laughs> But then, but yeah, and and so then this actually happened. This was a historical mm. thing that happened, and and then I guess you know they all got into a bit of a Christmas spirit as a result, mm. and they didn't like that so much, and sent everyone involved to the Eastern Front, which just seemed a bit like give with one hand and sort of take with the other, but. Because it's a sort of a reminder of something that unites German and British culture. Obviously, you know, you know, we 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 took their trees, we were gifted mm. them, we liked them. We liked them. We we took their royals too. So and we liked, <laughs> lots of things that they had that we liked, and, and we were meant to be friends, you know. And then, but also, you know, obviously, it would have been. I presume it would have been done to demoralise the other side to say, "Look, we're celebrating Christmas." Well, maybe, I presume yeah. yeah. that's what it was about. You know, that's that's what uh, mm. my understanding. And obviously, it didn't in this occasion. Mm. They said, "Well, this is the signal that it really is time for truce. Time to celebrate Christmas." Yeah, you know. The human spirit endures. But you know, when you when you say it's an anti-war film, I'm always like, well, I don't know that many pro-war films, really. I mean, there are some, <laughs> but, but there are some. I mean, there are propaganda films, and there's like mm. the Green Berets with John Wayne, and there are some where you're like, okay, this is really gung ho and it's serving a purpose yeah. or whatever. But um, you know, in this case, I think the anti-war message is kind of like it's about it's a sort of humanist thing where it's kind yeah. of the more things that there are many, many more things that make us give us common ground than there are that 
you know, it's very hard to explain why these men are there trying to kill each other, but it's very easy mm -hmm. to say, well, we all love Christmas and we all like mm -hmm. singing songs and we all like cigarettes and booze and football and you know all of the and not kid yeah not being killed. yeah i'm quite fond of that yeah and, and yeah, also yeah. you know to your point Pamela, about about the spiritual side to it because i think religion's an important part of this and the way that the different states used god and used religion to kind of like galvanize their people to this end mm. but isn't there a bit in it, well maybe i imagine this but is there a bit where they where he picks up and he realizes that the germans also have like in god we trust or whatever on there yes yeah. on, on the belt buckle and oh, you're yeah. like, well, actually, there's a little, another little moment which isn't really big in the script, but you're like, well, actually, it's saying that he's realizing that everyone is, thinks that they've got God on their side. Yeah. So everyone's got, you know, you haven't really got anything, any USP for what you're doing at all. Everyone's doing what they think is the, you know, the right thing. And I quite like, I quite like that about it. That kind of like investigation of of, of religion as a form of propaganda, I guess. I think it's interesting when people say, you know, there's never been a, like, I totally agree with you, Phil, like, you think, oh, of course a film is anti-war, because war is something that tears our country apart, like, tears everyone's lives apart. No one has anything good to say about war, really. Pro-war is a hard stance to take. But I think that people, you know, during the First World War, definitely really worried about this. If you showed any representation of war, because people were being encouraged to go, if you show some marching soldiers, if you show some heroism, then it will inspire people and it will mm. be sort of very gung-ho. And people thought, you know, it's almost like it's too cheap because you can't show anything of war without picking up on this mood that's in the air. Now, mm. the mood of enlisting and so forth that happened in 1914 is very different to how people felt by the end of the war and similar things happened in the second world war i think but there is a point when you can almost dangerously be pro-war even if you are trying maybe not to be fair but you know trying to say just just representing what it is you know the young young people want to get out there and do things they want to make a difference in the world and unfortunately as we see at the beginning of this film sometimes people believe that enlisting is the way to do that yeah. Well, you saw that a little bit in the, uh, the the Peter Jackson documentary as well, They Shall Not Grow Old, which was full of contemporary footage, you know, do, saying showing exactly what you're talking about. You know, soldiers marching, smiling, happy, mm. green fields, presumably. Well, he, he colorized it, so I can say green. Um, <laughs> Muddy green <you> know. fields. <laughs> I've seen them. But initially, gray. initially, yeah, initially green. But yes. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, when you went, when you, when Pamela was talking, was just now I was thinking about that Peter Jackson film because there's things in that film that you couldn't, they wouldn't have shown during the first world war. Because, no. Oh no, you know, no, that's all what yeah. they showed. That's everything that they showed during the first world war. Yeah. That's what they saw. And it was shown to reassure people back home, how well yeah. the soldiers were being treated and how, how much international cooperation there was. So it shows people looking after prisoners of war and things. Mm. So that is exactly what people saw in 1916. But there's a lot of stuff in that film that you wouldn't, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, corpses and death and wounds and stuff that they, you know, you wouldn't have shown in during that period to the public because it would have no, been... No, 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 yeah. it was shown to the public. Really? Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is now a They Shall Not Grow Old spoiler wow. special as well. This yeah. is awesome, yeah. <laughs> it's a Christmas angle we can bring in. Blame it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. That, film that. Was taken, that film was taken from documentary footage that's been, uh, that was shown during the war to the public and um, has been shown and restored and shown ever since yeah absolutely mostly is from the battle of the somme and really? things like that yeah wow. it was sent back um there's a there's an issue maybe that uh showing corpses and things looks different with a blood on them right you know? yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Good point. um 
But yeah, so there's definitely a lot of that material was shown to public and it was a way of sort of connecting people at home with what's going on because it's completely unknowable what's going on in the field. It's sort of pre-Baudrillard kind of war. We can't see it all the time on the TV. I know it sounds obvious. I've just said that annoying thing where you say the World First World War wasn't on TV and they didn't have internet either. <laughs> and they didn't have Wait, Empire what? Magazine. Um, but, but, you know, yeah, yeah, people wanted to see the front and that's what you see and um, they shall not grow old. Mm. So it's, it's haunting material now obviously. it really is yeah it really really mm. is anyway if for any listeners out there if you haven't seen they shall not grow old it is genuinely highly recommended it's a it's a fascinating fascinating slice of history i'm sam clements host of the 90 minutes or less film festival another podcast in the stripped media family a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have come from the worlds of film, television, music, food, comedy, and podcasting. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. Well, look, we have to we have to wrap this up, and we have to rank these films in two different criteria: Christmassiness—that's a very technical scientific term—and objective quality. So let's let's look at the Christmassiness of both films first. I'm I'm ranking them out of five because that's what I'm used to. What did you think of these two? Okay, uh, <laughs> Operation Christmas Tree. Let's—I would give it a three for Christmas. They kept mm-hmm. talking educationally about how Christmas could be celebrated around the world. True. Um, yet it had no. I think the word is joy um, <laughs> in the Christmas festival for me. Oh, very little. I'm very sarcastic, but I, I have to rank uh, Joe Noel as five out of five for Christmasiness. Wow, Trees yeah. and everything. Hymns, Christmas carols. Yeah. A bit of wine, it. you know. <laughs> and even wine, yeah, even wine <laughs> drunk out of bottles in a trench. Machine guns. And machine guns are very Christmassy. Mm. Yeah. Phil, how about you? Um, I would say, uh, yeah, I pretty much would go along with that. I would say three for Operation Christmas Drop. Mm. Um, the cognitive dissonance of like a summary, I lived in Australia, so I kind of like know how weird Christmas is when it's mm. hot and sunny. So I kind of like, but it still doesn't really feel like Christmas 100%. Yeah. So to any Australian listeners. And uh, Joy Noel 5, yeah, really, you know, an unusual Christmas, but yeah, mm. very festive in its own strange and slightly sad way. Yeah. Yeah, five for its Christmas spirit, if not all the trimmings. I think I think is the right way to go on that one. And uh, and yes, uh, I'll go with I'll go along with three. Let's all agree. You know that's okay. very Christmassy as well. Then we get higher Christmasiness scores. You see, it all works out. Um, this one might be uh, more of a divide between the two films. Objective quality um, between the two. How would you rank them? I mean, objective. How can any of us be objective, etc.? But you know what I mean. So the flower was artificial silk. Is all I'm saying. So one, right, one okay. for Operation Christmas Drop, and I'm going to say four for uh, Joe Noel. I I loved it. I you know didn't reinvent cinema, so it does it stays at four. But I loved it. Phil, um, I'm going to give one for the film and one for right. the gecko. So two for Operation <laughs> right. Christmas Drop, um, yeah. and I'm going to also go four mm-hmm. for Joyeux Noel. Or Merry Merry Christmas, as we call Merry, it around Merry here. Merry Christmas. Um, which I thought was, was yeah, like I say, really powerful and poignant. Awesome. I'm going to be really boring. I'm going to pretty much agree again. I think four for Joyeux Noël again. And um, 
Yeah, you know what? It's Christmas. I'm feeling generous. I'm going to give two stars to Operation Christmas Drop. They they went for something, you know. I I the, the charitable effort involved in the actual operation is is commendable, uh, even if the military presence in the region may not be desirable. Um, that is not so, a criterion yeah. for. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> it's Christmas rules. The I film is terrible, but the back Helen's just trying to make me look like the Grinch. That's what she's trying to do, and she's doing it very well. So kudos to Helen. Like amazing work. Damn it! <laughs> you saw through my cunning plan. Okay, so that is a total of something or other for uh, both films. But I think we have a clear winner here. If you haven't seen Joy and Noel, do have a look. And also, if you haven't seen They Shall Not Grow Old, have a look at that as well. And go along and watch the Marlena Dietrich series at the South Bank. So you, your viewing list uh, coming out of this particular episode is going to be quite a lengthy one, but it may not include Operation Christmas Drop. So that's one we've saved you anyway, if you haven't already seen it. Um, Pamela, Phil, thank you so much for joining me. This has been extremely edifying in every single way. Thanks for having me. Thank you and Merry Christmas. Hey. <laughs> If you've enjoyed listening to Bar Humbug, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts because it really helps other people find the show. You can also subscribe so you automatically get the rest of this podcast lined up hassle-free and it's only going to be a limited run up to Christmas. It won't be using up all your data. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can pre-order my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, which comes out in February 2021. You can also, of course, find me in Empire Magazine, which is the world's best film magazine for my money. And I'm on the Empire podcast every week and host the podcast, His Darker Materials, to coincide with BBC HBO drama, His Dark Materials. If you'd like to connect with me or comment on the show or have any queries or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara, or you can email producers at stripped.media. And I'd like to thank all the people who have made this podcast happen. Thanks to all the team at Strip Media, including Ben Williams, who edits this podcast, as well as Tom Wally, Dave Corkery, and Kobe Omanaka, who have all helped produce and put this show together. Thanks also to all of my guests who have been absolutely wonderful in giving up their time to watch some Christmas films that are not always 100% great. If you'd like to know more about this podcast and others produced by Strip Media, please visit www.stripped.media to find out more. And that's it. Merry Christmas. You just heard a Stripped Media production. 